God, you have given us sacraments to be outward and visible signs of the inward and spiritual graces you intend for each of us. We pray as we converse and think through what the sacraments have meant for us, that you would expand what they will mean, so that we might better enter the grace you intend for each and every one of your children. Amen. Okay, so, you know, um, I have to admit my brain is not functioning prime today. You'll find that out at 10.30, Nadine. It's really off a bit. Um, and that's okay, uh, maybe, except that that might affect what we do, sort of how we do this this morning. So um, I think we finally threw out the other thing, which is fine. We've been trying to talk through understandings of the traditional seven sacraments, and we did stop a bit uh, to think about whether there might be more than seven, particularly in the case of service. So just as a reminder, the, the prayer book breaks this for us, and, and, and this is what we sort of are, are holding on to over lots of years of tradition in the Catholic with the small C church, the seven sacraments. Um, the major two, of course, are the baptism and the Eucharist. We talked about the Eucharist, oh golly, it's been probably like six weeks ago now. And then, since talking about the Eucharist, we've mostly talked about marriage as a sacrament, uh, bogging down a little bit on Episcopal Church polity um, in ways that I guess were tangential. I don't know if they were like necessarily the best ways um, to talk about that, but in my head they made sense anyway. Um, and that leaves the other uh, five or other four lesser sacraments of ordination, confirmation, unction, which means anointing with oil, and reconciliation, which used to be called confession. Okay? And sometimes, depending on what book you read and how old it is, of course, you'll find unction, anointing with oil, called extreme unction or last rites. But because the church doesn't actually, this is going to be really sound funny when I say it, and I'm going to have to backpedal, because the church doesn't exactly give last rites anymore since 1976, we've changed it to anointing with oil for any reason, which might include prayers of the time of death, that's the new phrase for last rites, prayers of the time of death, but also um, that includes um, prayers for people who are at moments of any kind of weakness, physical or spiritual. So that could be healing prayer. That could be, um, in general, that's healing prayer. Sometimes, uh, you know, unction, broadly defined, can also include being anointed with chrism. That's another kind of holy oil that, that you might get when you're, well, you definitely get it when you're baptized, and you might get it when you're ordained. Some bishops even anoint your head with chrism when you're confirmed, but it depends on the bishop as to whether they do that at confirmation. Okay? So those are our big... Seven. Now, in my memory, and this was just only a week ago, but I'm, it's been a long week for lots of reasons. <laughs> um, what we had ended up talking about the last maybe three sessions was the sacrament of marriage and how marriage can be an outward and visible sign of an inward and visible grace. Of course, we know that not all people are called to marriage. Of course, we know that marriage is the, really the only sacrament that has two people participating, right? 
in all the other ones in the Eucharist, there's a second person that's the cleric, right? But, but, in, but in marriage, two non-clerics are participating by and large. I mean, priests can marry, that's fine, you know, but, but in general, there's two people involved, which makes this one a little bit harder. So what we talked about is ways that marriages might be outward and visible signs of inward and spiritual graces. And some of the feedback you gave was, uh, frankly, commitment. <laughs> commitment um, to keeping vows, like loving each other, which might mean fidelity and steadfastness and being with one another through sickness and poverty and wealth and health till death do you part, right? I mean, these, these are ways that we talked about being <clears throat> visible signs of God's spiritual graces, which, of course, makes sense because that's how God loves us, right? Through thick and thin, right? We talked about other sacramentality here of, of sort of being there with each other and calling each other to be better people in our marriage and having this, again, this, this long-term relationship. Of course, we ended up talking about, um, last time particularly, we talked about the, the, the ways that same-sex marriage has entered into the Episcopal Church and ways in which marriage is sort of um, functions in the Episcopal Church canonically. And just the quick reminders, I don't want to bore you to tears, right, but the quick reminders are that a rector can celebrate any heterosexual marriage he or she would like. A rector may turn down any marriage she or he would like without having to give any reason. A rector is in charge of all the marriages that are celebrated in her or his parish, right? So there's no compulsion that can make a rector approve of a wedding. A rector can forbid any marriage in her or his church, and it will not happen until the rector is, moves on. Um, told you that if um, one of the couples is having a second marriage, not because they're a widow, but because they've been divorced for any reason, including spousal abuse, that they have to write a letter to the bishop to get the bishop's permission to celebrate the marriage. Right? I told you a really great way to think about that is the bishop is trying to defend the sacrament against people who say, you know, you, you treat marriage too lightly. So why are you allowing all this to happen over and over again? The way the bishop has reason to say this is sacramental. And then the last bit I told you is that in the Diocese of Texas, that any priest can celebrate a same-sex marriage off church grounds without consulting their, their parish or their vestry or the bishop. Don't have to do that. Can have them in, you know... Um, parks or wherever. In fact, there's some debate as to whether or not a rector can celebrate a same-sex marriage in the church parking lot without having to ask. I mean, the, the point we spent some time on last time was that if a rector would like to celebrate a same-sex marriage in the sanctuary, the polity of the Diocese of Texas requires the vestry to vote in favor of celebrating that same-sex marriage in the sanctuary. Not the parish, the vestry, not a supermajority, a majority. So those were sort of the rules we laid, we, 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 we laid out, okay? Now, what I'm not sure we talked about, and maybe you're not interested, so this is a poll. I mean, the, the goal here is not to punish you with my, my, my witty and arcane knowledge of canon law, 
Because <laughs> usually that's not inspiring. Usually that's, that's, that's sort of pugilistic when we, when we put that on you guys. Um, what we didn't end up talking about, actually, was um, same-sex marriage and whether or not or how that might be sacramental. We don't have to do that. You might say, geez, Mike, we've talked about marriage for three weeks. How about we talk about something else? And I am totally ready and happy to do that. But you're, at least one of you is ready. But I just want to make sure, before I stop beating a horse that may be dead, that the horse, in fact, is totally dead. <laughs> because there may be something you're wondering about here, or you've thought of over the past three weeks, that you say, well, what about blah, 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 or I've had this thought. Seems like not. Seems like that horse is well dead. <laughs> if it wakes up and it needs another beating, just say, let's beat that horse some more. I had an idea. Okay? Well, let me ask you then if we might consider together, there's no particular order here, but maybe you'd like to go back up the list and talk about baptism because we haven't talked about the major sacrament of baptism. Or is somebody here thinking, gee, golly, I really wish we'd talk about reconciliation instead? Anybody want it? They've got an interest they really want to go to? Yeah, reconciliation. Okay, I heard one person say baptism and one person say reconciliation. I don't know how to reconcile these competing... <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about reconciliation, because that's actually quite interesting, and it's something I, I, I don't want to out you here, but has anybody participated in the sacrament of reconciliation before, also called confession? Like you've gone to a priest for confession. Sure, you do. Okay, so there's three of us in the room. I've done it exactly one time. Four. How many of you have been baptized, just out of curiosity? That's everybody in the room. Anybody had the Eucharist before? Okay. Uh, anybody been married before? Okay. Um, anybody else ordained? No. Um, anybody been confirmed? How about anybody ever been anointed with oil? So let's put that in perspective. Only slightly more people have done reconciliation slightly more than been ordained to the diaconate or, or the priesthood or to, the, to a bishopric, right? So this is interesting because, again, this sacrament comes up as one of the minors. Not everybody's called to do it, right? And very few people do. And, and I'll just tell you career-wise, how many people have done the rite of confession with me? I'm hazy whether it's two or three. So not very many. Now, as Ellen mentioned, we do this a couple of different ways, right? Every Sunday, there's the general confession, we call it general, and the general absolution, right? Of course, what the prayer book is asking us to do is confess in the same words together, but with very different intentions. This is important. The words are there to guide you to make sure you're thinking of the things that trouble your conscience. 
And the words are there to guide you to make sure you're thinking hard enough about the things that should trouble your conscience. So not just for the things we've done, but always for the things left undone. Right? That's the language that is meant to stretch you. And of course, the language is not meant just to be read. The language is meant to guide your thoughts internally to the specific things you've done and the specific things you've left undone for which your conscience is afraid. It happens quickly, right? It happens quickly. And honestly, after the kind of long sermons you typically get from me, um, anything you had in mind before is probably totally gone, right? <laughs> I was ready to confess blank, and I don't know, what am I even doing in the building? Where am I? Um, that happens sometimes. You get a very general absolution. And, um, and I'm a big fan. I'll let you know, I'm a big fan of one particular absolution above all others. We have options. We have optional confessions, too, and you'll see some of those this summer. The evil we've done and the evil done on our behalf. Some folks don't like that one because we like to pretend no evil is done on our behalf. But let's just get serious, people. I mean, you know, really, that's an admission that we live in structures of sin. And we do, you know, and, that, and, and, and that's something that we confess. I think it would be unfortunate if we didn't confess that we benefit from structures of sin every single day. You could say those are the things left undone. Of course, no one knows how to challenge how to fix those, 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 those bits, but confessing them seems at least like a start. Um, so, so I think there's that bit that stretches us. The absolution I like, I can tell you, it's the one you get every week, is Almighty and merciful or compassionate God grant you absolution and remission of all your sins, true repentance, amendment of life, and the grace and consolation of the Holy Spirit. Right? The reason I like that one above all other options in the prayer book is because it includes things that are markers of real repentance. Amendment of life. <laughs> real contrition. Uh, that, to me, seems to take this seriously. Because, after all, um, the business of discipleship is not that we continue to live in the same patterns that are taking joy away from us in the world, but that we live into a new way of life that's called amendment of life. So that, that seems to be the goal of the whole enterprise of being a follower of Jesus Christ to me, right, is that we amend our life. And so that, that seemed to take that seriously for me, so that's why you hear it. The other ones aren't bad, they just don't include that phrase, which, which I just think is really good. Um, we talked about this before. One of the tough things about the Episcopal Church is we have a prayer book that has lots of resources in it, but you are sort of stuck with the piety of the priest. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's sort of what we do. That's part of the good thing about the book, though. There might be a prayer you really love that we don't do in church. You can do it at home. <laughs> you can do it at home. It doesn't make it work any less than doing it here in church. So, so why do we have something else? If we do that every week, why do we have something else? I think the reason is that it, there's a couple of reasons for it. One is, as I've sort of already said, it can be really difficult to have a sober list of those things that our conscience is afraid of and give that meaningful space during the general confession, which is really short. It can be really difficult to have that list 
of things of which our conscience is afraid in our head and hear a general absolution and not a particular one. It can be very difficult to have that general list of things of which our conscience is afraid because quite honestly, we've already told God we're afraid of those things, sometimes for many years, and not hear from a specific person on God's sort of behalf that those things are meant to be put away. Now, we all have to think about this differently, I I think, because we all approach repentance and apologies differently. Right? Really, the goal of reconciliation is to take two parties that have, been, that have been distanced by some event and bring them back together. Right? When we do this with a priest, the distance is distance we perceive to be between us and God. And what we're really saying is, God, we'd like to close the gap our choices or our lack of choices have put between you and me. I think it's important to think about this theologically first. The the, the real question that I think we have to struggle with, and and not just say, because I think we sometimes say things, and we might cognitively go there, but, but, but the center of our being doesn't usually sit there, right? There's this saying by Desmond Tutu, there's nothing you can do to make God love you any more, and there's nothing you can do to make God love you any less. Now, I happen to be a big fan of that phrase. It makes a lot of sense to me. My being does not rest in that phrase. My being believes very full-heartedly, there are a lot of things I can do to make God love me less. (laughs) And there are many, many things I could do that would tempt God to love me more. I'm just being honest with you. That's sort of where I, I actually sit in the center of my being, regardless of my cognition and my wonderful um, Protestant theology. I think reconciliation is one of those things we try to do to help bridge the gap between where our being sits and where our cognition is. I think it becomes really important to ask the phrase, what do we really trust? Do we trust that phrase by Desmond Tutu, that there is nothing we can do to make God love us more or less? Or are we growing to trust him? Do, do, do you know what I mean? There are some people that'll say, that's silly, that's not true, right? God really appreciates merit from the saints. Or, you know, when people are living in sin, that is a real distance between them and God. But I think, I think what's hard about having a, a reasonable faith, right, is that we've, we've got these conclusions as a church. One of them is that God's omnipresent, so God's everywhere, right? prayer book says, sin is separation from God. So how can God be everywhere and you can be separate from God? That's not reasonable, is it? I mean, they can't both actually be true. And in my head, the reconciliation says, God is actually everywhere, I just don't feel like it all the time. (laughs) Right? Now that's very real. You know, and that gets back to where my center of my being sits as opposed to my cognition, right? And, 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 and we get this, right? Because we have this whole Christian theological culture of uh, 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 ways we pray. I mean, just think about it. I can't tell you how many times 
I've been, and it doesn't matter whether it was Southern Baptist or Catholic or Lutheran or Methodist or Presbyterian or, or, or the Episcopal Church, honestly, that I've been in a prayer group that wasn't using the prayer book and we asked God to be present. Does that prayer even make sense? <laughs> do, do you know what I mean? Does that literally make sense? Or are we really trying to say, God, it sure would be great if we are aware of the presence you've already promised that you have with us. I know you might be saying, Mike, that's hair splitting. That's why I'm an Episcopalian, so I can split hairs. <laughs> if I didn't want to do that, I'd be something different. <laughs> I'd be something different if I didn't want to split hairs, right? I, I don't know what I would be. I think hair splitting is actually really important because, you know, there's actually a lot of research that says the way we pray is the way we actually, the language we use when we pray determines where the center of our being rests. So I think it's really important to say, if, I, if my prayer language says, God be with me, God be with me, God be with me, uncritically, the center of my being might actually rest into, in distrust as to whether God is with me. You may say, Mike, that's not true for me, but I just ask you to consider it. I ask you to consider it. The phrase we use in Latin is lex orandi, lex credenti. That is, the things that are, are practiced are the things that become credible, not the other way around. You might be surprised to know that people were baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit before the doctrine of the Trinity ever came up. A lot of research says the reason we have the doctrine of the Trinity is because people were baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. People were doing it so people had to make sense of it. You can be cynical or positive however you want to, but, but certainly the phrase Father, Son, and Spirit comes before Doctrine of the Trinity. That's no argument with that. And that was happening at baptism. Do you recall, Mike, by any chance, was it late, about halfway through the fourth century when that actually became dogma? The Trinity? Yes, yeah, so the question is when the Trinity became dogma, and, and the answer to that is by the end of the first century of our common era, so you're thinking like 96 AD or CE, right? Definitive Christian practice, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So by the end of the first century, that was happening. The formal adoption of the Trinity was extremely divisive and didn't really get adopted as an overarching creedal statement until 325 in the Council of Nicaea. And you should know that the original Nicene Creed, we don't say the original one, said, you know, we believe in, in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, blah, 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 all the stuff about Jesus, blah, 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 and in the Holy Spirit, period. <laughs> that was where the 325 Creed ended. The 385 Creed, the, or 381 actually, Council of Chalcedon, was the one that added all the other bit. Proceeds from the Father and the Son, with the Father and Son is glorified. That came, you know, you're thinking 60 years after the Nicene Creed. So what we say actually is the Chalcedonian upgrade of the Nicene Creed. Okay? And the doctrine of the Trinity continued to really bother people, even at that time. Um, Constantine, the first Christian emperor, right, the one who, who 
didn't make Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. That's wrong. It did not happen by him. But he did make Christianity legal and gave clerics the same rights as pagan clerics and then eventually gave more patronage than he gave anybody else. Um, um, Constantine was not a Trinitarian. <laughs> he was a heretical Arian who believed that Jesus was a created being and not co-eternal with the Father. So, so the creed that Constantine ultimately sponsored and pushed through is one he didn't believe in. So the Trinity comes way, 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 way late, and it came so late, really, that, that honestly, you know, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago in church, it's one of those doctrines of the church that's been really difficult for us in the past because, you know, Muslims and Jews accuse us of being polytheists, that most people have no idea why we'd want to be Trinitarian anyway. <laughs> It's just something we believe, but, but, but why? You know, I mean, that's, that, that's sort of the bit. And, and I want to, I think the, the logical link for saying all that is sometimes we pray in patterns without thinking through the pattern. I was taught to pray a certain way, not because someone sat down and gave me lessons, I just listened to how other people prayed. Do, do, do you get what I mean? Now, if anybody grow up outside the Episcopal Church? So, and, and maybe you learned something different. I'll tell you, if you grew up evangelical, and I, anybody evangelical? I, saw, I, know, I know some of those hands were Roman. Did anybody grow up like Baptist or Methodist? So some of the ways to pray I heard was that you'd say Lord like it was a comma, like all over the place. Lord, we just ask you, Lord. We just, we pray to you, pray to you, Lord, right? Anybody heard that before? It's not, it's not wrong. It's not in the prayer book, though, right? Because we've already addressed the prayer to God and we stay consistent to it. Now, again, I'm not, I'm not dickering with that way of praying. I'm saying we were taught it by listening to other people pray, right? And, and, and the, the, the operating assumption when we pray that way is that if we keep saying, Lord, we'll keep God's attention. I'm going to be honest with you, right? I mean, and, and see if that is true for you. You may say, Mike, that, no, I didn't mean that for me. For me, it meant I needed to keep invoking the name of Jesus because there was power in the name of Jesus, and Lord meant Jesus. And if I kept saying it, it would help me get what I was asking for, and it would keep God's attention. Because God's got to listen to a lot of people pray, you know? And, and God likes to hear Lord. Those were the implicit assumptions. Now, listen, I'm not saying anything bad about it. I'm, I'm just sort of saying, if you step back from it a bit, is God weary of giving us attention? Cognitively, no. Cognitively, no. Has the center of your being ever thought, God is so tired of me praying? You don't even have to have grown up evangelical to feel like that. God's got other things to do. This is not important enough. <sighs> I'm not worth listening to. It, it doesn't mean that if I pray them in the manner of the prayer book, I'll never feel that. But I think there's something to be said about the way we pray shows us how we, where the center of our being actually sits in relationship to God. Paying careful attention to our words might say more about where we are on our spiritual journey than we think. Okay? What does that have to do with reconciliation? Well, I think a lot of times we might come and say, you know, God, forgive me for this thing, but I, but I already know you're not going to forgive me for this other thing. 
God, I know that you'll put away like lies I told, but I mean, God, can you ever forgive blood? God, I know that you'll forgive these things, but in general, will you forgive me for being me? I mean, these are thoughts that I sometimes have at the general confession. And I'll tell you the reason why we have the other one, I think, is to give more attention to those feelings that can be unresolved. Now, you know, in the past, this happened in a booth. Right, happened in a booth, so there could be total anonymity. Which makes some sense. Except you should know that our Roman partners since Vatican II are no longer doing this in booths, or they're not supposed to. Reconciliation in the Roman Church is supposed to happen face-to-face with the priest. Because Vatican II was a step for the Roman Church, and quite frankly, we've been doing this, living into this as well, in the Episcopal Church, right, which is, which is Catholic and Protestant at the same time. There's something to be said about doing this right with a human being. And human beings have faces. There's something totally different about doing this with a faceless priest in a box than there is looking at someone who we know to be someone like us. Well, hopefully we know, right? Basically, the trend is to humanize the priest. There's this phrase that happens sometimes, and maybe you've heard it in the Episcopal Church. It's called Father Knows Best. Do you know this one? Father Knows Best. Usually we say that phrase when we're confident Father does not know best. (laughs) Oh, you decided to build an electronic sign for the church. Well, Father Knows Best. (laughs) Of course, what that does, right, is it elevates the cleric to frankly being a non-human entity. And that can be really dangerous for lots of reasons. Lots of reasons. You know, we, we forget that priests are, are people just like us. In fact, priests are sometimes people worse than us, just with different calls, you, you know, different functions in the community. I think the real goal of doing this face-to-face, though, is that you get to see another human being hopefully hold you in the middle of your uncertainty. Now, look, it can be real dangerous because if you say, you know, um, to your priest, Golly, you know, I just have to confess, I just, I stole these cookies when I was three years old and I just can't stop thinking about it. And the priest says, that's all you've got to say? That's all that's bothering you? Then I don't think the sacrament happened. Does does, does this make sense what I'm saying? Well, I'll absolve you, but I don't know why, right? I mean, this is difficult. This comes back to what we talked about way at the very beginning, right? Does the sacrament happen because of the priest, in spite of the priest, or regardless of the priest, you know? And, and I think it's important to bring that, that question up every time when we think about these bits, right? Because honestly, if you come in and you've been biting your nails for 83 years about those cookies and the priest makes fun of you, was, it out, was that an outward sign of, of a spiritual grace? It might be if we think that God mocks us. And, and I grew up thinking that God did mock people. I'm trying to you know, get away from that because I think it's wrong. <laughs> uh, but but, but that, could, that could lead me back to a really damaging time in my life. And it, and, and it would go there because of the priest. Do, do, do you get what I'm saying? Like this, is a, this is a tough bit, right? Because the official doctrine is happens regardless of the priest. But, but I'm not sure that's always the case. Now, I think this works well when the priest sits there and says, oh my God, you've lived with that fear for 84 years? 
How awful. And, and, and we're here today in the name of God to put that fear behind you so that you can live the joyful life God intends. That's the reason for doing it. The, the reason for doing this is so that you can come with your laundry list of what you're worried about specifically and hear another human being say, when I preach, you're hearing me. When I give the adult forum, you're hearing me. When I give this absolution, I want you to hear God. That's why we do it. It's one of those moments, and I told you this last time, watch a bishop when they come. Now, our bishops in Texas don't usually wear miters. I mean, they really don't. And, and honestly, they rarely hold the crozier either. You know, the, the shepherd's stick. They rarely carry that stuff around with them. You go to an ordination, maybe they don't even wear vestments in general like we're used to. They wear the rochet shamir, you know, like the, the lower bit, the Anglican things. They, they look like pirate sleeves, you know, like, like puffy pirate sleeves with wristbands on them. I think they're nice because what they're trying to do, right, is, is, is not be extremely hierarchical. That's what they're trying to do. But, but the diocese I came from, the bishop converted to the Rochet Shemir, but he would still wear the mitre at ordinations and things, right? But he didn't wear it the whole service. He can't wear it the whole service. You wear that mitre at the blessing. You wear it at the absolution. Maybe you wear it one other time. You wear it in moments where the bishop is not speaking for herself. You wear it when the bishop, we think, is speaking for God. And the bishop doesn't speak her own words from God. The bishop speaks the words in the prayer book. <laughs> this is important, right? The bishop is putting that thing and saying, in the best situation we can imagine of God's authority on earth, do not hear Jim Mathis or Andy Doyle or Jeff Fisher or Dina Harrison. Do not hear my voice. Hear God's voice. Now to show you, that I'm no longer representing God, I am taking this off. <laughs> I mean, that's the point of the liturgy. And, and absolution is one of those times, right? And, and this happens in rooms, I think, facing each other with the strong encouragement, I'm just a person, but I really want you to hear God's absolution and the one I'm going to give you. I think the question we have to ask is, does God need us to do this? And I'd like to know what you think. Another question. Mike. Oh, please. So I'm trying to direct, I guess, to reconciliation, but it has to do between the Jewish understanding and Christian. I'm having, I'm hmm? trying, to, trying to see this. You know that sin is a very big issue of mention in our High Holy Days and the month before. Right. Personally, the month before, between you and me and whoever I have maybe offended over the years. During the High Holy Days, the confession is a, unlike previous month, where it's personal and confession is communal. Mm -hmm. We all confess the same thanks at the same time. Yeah. Things I may have never done. I didn't rape, I didn't murder, but we confessed these things. Yep. We did everything, no matter who did it. Mm -hmm. For us, what that means is we are a group. We are one people. But how does that compare with, with the Christian understanding? Yeah, thank you for asking that. The question is really about 
does reconciliation and confession happen individually or does it happen corporately? And, and I think the answer has to be both. And, and you, know, you know, there's different penitential times in whatever religion you belong to. I, you know, if you're Muslim or, or, or Buddhist, there's different penitential times, right? You, you, have, you have Ramadan as a penitential time. If you're Jewish, you have the period ostensibly between Rosh Hashanah and, um, and, and Yom Kippur, right? You've got these 10 days of thoughtful, uh, communal, penitential season. Of course, we have Lent, right? And you know that the first day in Lent, Ash Wednesday, we do a big confession of all the things we've done. And sure enough, some of those things that I'm involved in confessing, I haven't done either. But I join right on in because we have done those things, like you're saying. That also happens in the Great Litany, the first Sunday of Lent, where we confess to things we do in church that I didn't do, <laughs> but that we did do. I think that's what's nice about the general confession. The things we've done, the things we've left undone, the evils we've done, the evils done on our behalf. Right? That's the communal piece. Now, th this has certainly happened in Christianity over the last really 200 years, uh, I mean, you could say it's older than that, but, but some, one of the consequences of, of romanticism, of the Great Awakening, was having an individual relationship with God that might have been more privileged than the communal relationship with God, right? It was all about me getting saved, me having a personal relationship with Jesus, and in some ways that became more important at periods of history, has gone up and down, than with our community as a whole. Honestly, I think that's a product of Western culture more than it is anything else. So you can build whatever liturgy you want. You can be Jewish or Muslim or Unitarian, and, and I think you're going to have to contend with our individualistic tendencies in the West. I just I, I believe that. Right? Um, I think we try to deal with it uh, as a both and. and. And what's interesting is often when people come for the sacrament of reconciliation, they don't usually just give an oblique thing like, I just feel really bad that I've lied. They usually say, I'm here because this thing happened between me and my husband or my children, or this thing is happening in my work environment. and, and my conscience is afraid of it. I guess you could say that's individualistic, but I think it's pretty corporate as well. I think we're, we're saying that there are other parties in the fabric of our community that have been injured. I, I don't know the perfect answer. I mean, I, I, I don't know the answer. I think... And, and I don't know that the contrast is as strong as we like to think it is. I think part of it, honestly, is, is so contextual. It really depends on, on where where we live and what our church is like, I, I, or what our synagogue is like, and whether or not they stress only individual accountability or they remind us that we have corporate accountability. You know, I think it's, it's one of those really difficult things to think that the choices I make affect everybody else on the planet. That's really difficult to think about when I'm in the store trying to choose between two different kinds of batteries. You know, and I don't know anything about either one except for how much they cost. Right? <laughs> this is really, really difficult. And that's an overwhelming way to live. So I, I don't know if I have much else to say about that, unfortunately. Uh, but I do want to ask you, the rest of the group, does God need our confession? Yes. 
This is meant to not be me steamrolling what you think. Say more about that idea. So it's a way, confession, Nadine said, is a way of us saying, you know, God, we want to be involved in the reconciliation of the relationship. Any other thoughts? Will God reconcile the relationship against our will? I think that's kind of an important question. I'm going to turn the air on because it's really hot. Oh, and that's making it loud. Okay, look. Yeah, any thoughts on that? Will God reconcile the relationship with us even if we don't want that to happen? Okay, so the, the phrase was, this is the C.S. Lewis quote, there's two groups in the world, people who say to God, thy will be done, and people to whom God says, thy will be done. I'm a little more hopeful than C.S. Lewis, I want you to know. I, I sort of think that God intends to reconcile the world to God's self, even if we go kicking and screaming. <laughs> um, there's lots of reasons I think that. Um, it sure would make God greater than us if God could do that, which is the number one criterion when we approach God. God should be better than we are, just fundamentally, right? So, so if God could do that, you've heard me say this in sermons, I, I do sort of... I do sort of think the magic is, if we can't be reconciled on earth, that's fine. God will wait till we die, but, but, but God will do it then. Um, even if we say, God, I never want to be reconciled. That seems to be like some of the magic to sort of believe in with God. Uh, yes, sir. This is really good. What Ken said, what about the idea that God has already reconciled God's self to us, but the sacrament is the way in which we respond back to the reconciliation God has already done before we came in the room? Well, I think that's right. And, 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 and I just want to remind you, I'm, I'm, I'm outing myself maybe, I don't think God needs any of that stuff. Because <laughs> if God needed that stuff, then God wouldn't really be much better than we are. We need stuff like that, right? I'm pretty sure the sacraments are things we need. We need baptism because it does things for us. But, I'm, but I get a little uncomfortable 
with people saying you can only come to communion when you're baptized, or that baptism is your birth into God's family, because that sure seems to imply if you're not baptized, you're not a part of God's family, and that just doesn't seem theologically right to me. You, you, you know, that seems really weird. Because there's people in the world who are not going to be baptized because of lots of reasons, like they're born Muslim or they're born in equatorial Africa and there's nobody around that knows anything about baptism or they don't have water. <laughs> These are legitimate reasons not to be baptized. And it seems really difficult for God to exclude them categorically from God's family because they didn't have water put on them by a priest. Don't you think? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. I sure grew up that way. And you know, that way of thinking makes a lot of sense to me because my family works like that. I just think God's got to be better than us. Sometimes I think that viewpoint we, we come to because that's how we treat each other. And, and then what we've done is we've crafted God in our own image because God acts like that, but even better than we do. God's even better at the exclusion and merit game than we are. I grew up with that theology, which is why in general, like, I'm just afraid of God. I'm trying to grow up out of that, you know. But um, I'm actually making some good progress over the last five years. It takes a lot of work. Um, and and I, again, I totally get that because that's how we treat each other. The world seems to run like that. So it's really easy to say that's how God God is. I, I, just, I just find it hard to believe that we would worship a God that's better at us at being petty. Because <laughs> that's really just worshiping ourselves. You, you know, um, we have this really weird tension, and, and I sure grew up with it, that God loves me and God hates me at the same time. And, and so, you know, I grew up with friends that, that don't seem to have this like theological baggage of being afraid that God hates them. We grew up in the same place, heard the same words. Maybe it's just I'm wired a certain way, and I heard like, oh yeah, sure, Jesus died on the cross for your sins, but He doesn't really like you. you know, I just I I just sort of internalized that for a long, 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 long time, and 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 that's where I think it's worth coming back to these things to say like, okay, so if only people who are baptized can come to God's table, then then that sort of saying that you have to earn a place at God's table. Well, I think it's worth asking, does, does God's table work like that? Honestly, even some of our tables don't work like that. There's people that if they show up at your house for Thanksgiving, you might say, oh my God, what are you doing here? But because you're related to them, you probably will let them come sit down and you'll try to be really nice. <laughs> do, do you know what I mean? I mean, we don't even function that way as, as in, within our family groups. Uncle so-and-so, we might like bite our teeth the whole time or get up to do the dishes immediately so we don't have to interact with him, you know, but he can come to the table. <laughs> we might say you'd, you'd be saving us a lot of pain if you just wouldn't show up. But if he does, he gets a seat. You, you, you know, I mean, we're not even that petty all the time within our own families. We're not. And I think that's kind of what's, 
what's got to be at stake here, right? And, and, and the dangerous bit is you can hear this and say, well, if God doesn't need any of this, then I don't either. But I think that's where we're wrong, because unlike God, we, we have firm human bodies and we have patterns of interaction. And I think the reason we have these things is because our humanity needs them. I mean, the, the struggle for me anyway, and, and I've done lots of research and reading and I've tried on a lot of this stuff, is that cognitively I do believe in wonderful things. The center of my being just doesn't rest there. <laughs> And the sacraments are there to get my being resting in what I say I believe in, I think. And I can't do it any other way. I didn't think so. I do worry about this exclusion bit. And of course, you know, we always, this comes up every time, because of course we worry about giving God's grace away too freely. Isn't that a funny phrase, though, to think about? (laughs) Yeah, but you know, we have this illusion that we're in control of how it's dispensed here, and that's good enough for us, you know? We have the illusion that we're in control of how God's grace is dispensed at this church. If people want cheap grace, they can go over there to those, well, not the Lutherans. I don't know where they can go. They can go to those United Church of Christ people. They are real easy and cheap. They can go over there. But not here. No, grace means something here. We're going to make you work for it. <laughs> Nobody else thinks that's funny. All right. <laughs> well, to be honest with you, I think, I think that some of our natural human disposition, and of course, as I told you before, I won't marry any couple. I won't. Not because I'm afraid of the church's blessing. I mean, the truth is, you can get it from somewhere if you just have perseverance. You know, someone will eventually say yes to it. Um, I just want to be able to celebrate it, and if I can't, I can't do it. Um, What about somebody that wants to come and confess? Am I going to make them show me the merits of their penance before I give them absolution? No. No, I don't think so. I could. You know, I could. The prayer book allows me to deny communion from notorious sinners. So at the rail, I could say, you know, I'll see you in confession before I see you at the rail again. I'm I'm allowed to do that. Um, I get how that, you know, is getting even with people that have hurt us. I, I just... I'm just not sure that it's very godly, <laughs> you know. Somebody told me, um, you know, well, well we, we, we think that absolution comes after confession. You know, look at the service. You confess and then you get absolved. So God's absolution comes second. But, but, but I think it's actually the other way around. I think we actually believe God's going to absolve us before we confess or we wouldn't do it. <laughs> Have you ever been in a church where the priest says, let's confess our sins known and undone, and then gets up and says, I was going to absolve you, but I don't think you're sorry enough, so no absolution. You ever been to that one? (laughs) The liturgy says absolve the people. (laughs) Do you you know what I mean? I I, I think it's a foreordained conclusion. You'll get an absolution. Because if you didn't trust that, 
would you take the risk of confessing? Do, do you know what I mean? Imagine how tough it would be if you sat down and spilled your guts to a priest in a room and said, you know, I just, this is eating me up. And the priest was like, well, it's not eating you up enough. So I want you to go out and feel sorrier about it and then come back and we'll try this again. I wonder if that would be anti-sacramental. <laughs> do, 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 you know, do you know what I'm saying? The reason I'm giving you this big picture is because when this was called confession, and before we use the modern word reconciliation, there were two bits that were required by the clergy for people to be reconciled to God. And this is famous in the person of Martin Luther. You had to, number one, have contrition. You had to be really sorry for what you did, not just a little. You had to be really sorry. <laughs> and you had to do penance. You had to make right what you made wrong, unless trying to make it right made the wrong even worse, which if you know the 12 steps of AA or NA, that's built right in there, right? We make right, we apologize, we repair the relationship, unless doing that is really just about us and not about the relationship, right? So those were the bits. You had to have contrition and you had to have penance. And you know, poor old Martin Luther, um, his biggest struggle was he didn't know if he was contrite enough. Because if you think that God is this holy, blameless, spotless individual that has this perfect understanding of justice, which Luther thought because he was an attorney, right? He had a legal metaphor for God. And everything you do wrong completely offends the creator of the universe. How can you ever be sorry enough? Because lying isn't just lying, it's spitting in God's face. I mean, that was his idea. Anytime you, you commit some transgression, you've broken the whole law and you've demeaned God. Well, how can you ever be sorry enough for demeaning God? Now, Luther, he didn't have any problem with penance. He had trouble with contrition. And, you know, that took him to this place where he said, well, of course, we never can be sorry enough. And we don't have to be. <laughs> that was his thing. We don't have to be sorry enough. Uh, grace is what exists regardless of our interior state. Interestingly enough, Luther still put a really, really big value on doing penance. Amendment of life, that's the word you hear in the absolution, right? Now, I don't know that I've said anything particularly interesting to you, so I want to say something else about why, why I think we should do this. It's not just because of the things that we've done that we know are wrong. We know the things that we've done that are wrong. We know those things. I think one of the values of confession and reconciliation for us is that there are things in our life that we just are afraid of. They may not be wrong. And I think the clearest example for me is what we did for our children as a parent, thinking back, did I do enough? Or there was that moment when they were in the eighth grade and they brought that thing home and I did this and I wonder if I just shouldn't have done that. Does anybody else with children think like that? My mother thinks like that. I'm pretty sure when I came to the Episcopal Church, she thought, oh man, I really messed up as a parent. <laughs> or he would have not have done that. I think that's why we need reconciliation. 
See, it's not just that we have this opportunity to confess things that we know are morally wrong to God. We have this opportunity to say to God, God, I am worried about the parent that I was and that I am. I'm worried that I did not uphold my spouse. Now, that's different from lying and stealing and killing. Do you know what I mean? You could say, well, that's some of the things left undone. To be honest with you, I I just think it has to do with anxiety that's a part of life when we're involved in relationships with people we care about. Anxiety. Did we do enough? Did we do right? I, I believe in tough love, but was I too tough? Was I not tough enough? You know, where would my kid be if I'd done blah? And there are times in our lives, my life, where those things become louder than just the back, background noise. Sometimes they can get really loud to where like, they're dominating some mental space and energy. And you know when that happens, when the volume goes up, I might find myself living in a perceived separation from God. I might be living in sin, to quote the prayer book. Not because I'm doing something wrong, but because I feel separate from God's presence and love because I'm, I'm resting in my anxiety and in my worry and my fear about people I love and what I did with them. So I think that's why we have reconciliation. You can come in and sit with another human being who in this case has also raised children and is married and is related to people and whatever, a lot of commonalities, and you can say, this is separating me from the joy I think God wants me to have. And then you can hear a clergy person say, for everything I'm not in this moment, hear God's voice and not mine. God has put that behind you. You put that behind you. God is beckoning you to go forward without that. Go forward with God. There's something pretty powerful about that think. Because quite honestly, for me, my worries and anxieties are more separating me from God than my moral transgressions. My moral transgressions, I usually know what to do about those. (laughs) It's those other bits that you can't do anything about. You could go to your children and say, when you were in the eighth grade, you brought that paper home and I said this and it's been eating me up and I'm wrong and I'm sorry. And you know, that would benefit neither one of you because there's nothing they could say that would make you get over that. They might say, mom, you're crazy. I don't even remember that. And you would say, how can you not remember that? I've been thinking about it for 30 years. You're just saying that. Oh my God, I traumatized you so bad. You repressed the memory and you forgot it. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's why we go to reconciliation with a priest who, if we do this right, we say, I'm deeply grieved that that is separating you from God. I'm deeply grieved that you think you deserve that. You don't. I mean, this, this, is, this is what's sacramental, right? Is that we come in worried and we come out relieved. The opposite would not be sacramental. We come in relieved and we come out worried, right? That's the opposite of the sacrament. Because spiritual grace doesn't do that. Um, you know, I still have two kids at home, but I have this plan that, that, that when my girl um, 
moves out, I'll be headed to reconciliation. I may not make it that long. I may need to go in ahead of that and take it in chunks because the truth is it's not an extreme thing. It's available anytime you want. And if you've never done it, it takes about 10 minutes, really, unless you've got a scroll of things you're worried about. It might actually take a really, really long time. Um, there's something really powerful about saying what it is we're afraid of. We don't usually say the things we're ashamed of. And that's part of the power is we're afraid to say them, right? And, and that's part of why they continue to hurt. This is a very strong psychological exercise, but, but I don't think that's just how it works. The spirituality of it, right, is that in saying it, we're to be upheld in our moment of worry by another human being who then pronounces, God does not want you to live that way. And that hopefully reminds us that God does not want us to live that way. And hopefully that helps us take our center of being from living that way to not living that way, which is hopefully kind of what we believe anyway. Any other questions about reconciliation? Please. Four basic parts of the sacrament of penance and the uh, atonement or substitution, making making better, was not only face to face, which I think is really important with the local priest or functionary, but penance, unlike the time of Luther and his complaint of visiting icons and sanctuaries, mm -hmm. and walking up steps on your knees in the snow, penance was the woodcutter comes in, got a problem confesses to the priest, talks about it, has a cup of coffee. The priest said, for your penance, you need to go down and cut the wood, split it, and deliver it to Mrs. Johnson, who just lost her husband in winter's company. Mm -hmm. And it just emphasized the community. And I thought, you know, seeing penance as part of a community, it just really made me appreciate what penance was. Yeah not selling indulgences and putting a copper in the box and letting a bell ring. Sure. So the comment was, if you didn't hear this, is that there was a, there's an early strain in Christianity that when you're giving penance, it's not saying so many Hail Marys and Our Fathers. It's actually doing something to make restitution to the community. And, and this, this sort of makes sense, right? Penance is about us making right what we made wrong. So if we steal, we give the money back with entrance. That's penance. If we can't make restitution directly, the idea is we make restitution to the community who's been hurt by every bit that we did, even if it, it's not tit for tat, it's just contributing to something that we've taken from. And well, I think that makes sense as penance. Sometimes penance is, <laughs> you're not allowed to tell yourself that thing you're telling yourself anymore. That's your penance. Not allowed to look at yourself in the mirror and say, man, I was a bad parent. Not allowed. Your penance is stop doing that. <laughs> that's good penance. If that's what you came in for. You know, even if you were a really bad parent. You were. But, but you were. You don't have to be anymore. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, that's sort of the deal. Oh, okay, anything else? Doesn't end when they move out either. Oh, we all know that. We all know that. Yeah. Well, thank you all. See you next time. <laughs>